when you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts. This is part four. Doubts caused by an old scar trying to protect itself. I found this a fascinating uh, kind of a study. I've actually dealt with this subject before, but not for nine or ten years. I want to show you a couple of really amazing details from a passage of Scripture you probably know pretty well, but I'll bet you... That probably isn't a good expression for a pastor. I imagine you never thought about a particular kind of doubt that's included in this passage. So the text is Luke 24, 33 to 42. Even if you think you know it, turn to it, because I want to show you something that's really strange and I think illuminating in there. Luke 24, 33 to 42. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying... The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And and then this must have been some moment. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, this has to be the strangest question. Why are you troubled? Look at this. This is the, this is the subject we're looking at, right? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? When do the doubts arise in their hearts? Right when Jesus appeared. So Jesus comes, stands in front of them, the risen Christ, and talks to them. And what Jesus says is, what is there about this that causes doubts to arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, it is I myself. Touch me, see. Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And by the way, that's why our resurrection bodies won't be spirits and ghosts. They'll be bodies, the bodies that will come out of the grave. This is where we get that. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And here's the same thing again. While they still, there it is, disbelieved for joy. Is that possible? While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said, and obviously trying to help them out, he said to them, do you have anything to eat I just would love to have been there. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. Let's just pray. Help us to see something this morning that will generate uh, life and faith, confidence in God in our hearts. Use your word. Oh, how we thank you for it. Our creator and our Lord, the Holy Spirit, talking to us, speaking to our hearts. What a sacred moment. 
Guard us from error. And let your truth be liberating, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I highlighted the two striking verses. 38, really striking. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then right on the heels of that verse, we find the same idea unpacked in verse 41. While they still disbelieved for joy. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And they're still disbelieving for joy. Those are the phrases I want to try and tap into. And what we see, of course, is not all doubts have the same root system. They don't all come about the same way. I can certainly sympathize with the disciples for their initial reaction to the news of the resurrection of Jesus. I can put myself pretty simply in their shoes, at least in this respect. Even though Jesus said he would rise, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about it a great deal, but still, that's not a normal occurrence. And so just words, words can only carry so much freight with them. So understandably, it it took some convincing, it took some evidence. I have no problem with that. I think we can all agree, we looked at it last week, this is probably the most common form of doubt. But not all doubts are caused by lack of evidence. Take note of the the two kinds of doubts in this resurrection account. So when the disciples first heard the news, they didn't believe it. Fair enough. They doubted the reports. Probably we should be happy that The accounts we have from the apostles of the resurrection aren't just the result of wishful thinking because they were all convinced against themselves of the reality of the resurrection. Half a day goes by. Facts start to mount. The two women come as eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. The two disciples report talking with Jesus on the Emmaus Road. Simon Peter, with his first-hand experience of the risen Christ, conclusive. So there seemed to be only one conclusion, and they reached it after reviewing all the evidence. It's in 33 and 34 of this chapter of Luke. And they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together saying saying the Lord has risen indeed there you go the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon this is the way we would expect belief to grow this is the way we would expect doubts to be expelled or at least minimized so faith was already building in their hearts and then And then something else happens. Okay. To make matters even more conclusive, the text says, Jesus himself came. Jesus himself came and stands there with them and he talks to them. And and you would think that would do it. A lot of people give you the impression if you just give them enough proof, they will, they will believe. 
But strangely, Jesus comes physically, eats fish, speaks. They touch him. And that's where this second kind of strange doubt comes into the picture. After all the reports, after all the evidence, after seeing Jesus right before their eyes, we read that they were, quotes, disbelieving for joy. Jesus says to them, why are doubts arising? He's standing there. Why are doubts arising in your hearts? And they're still disbelieving for joy. Oh, I know, it didn't last long. But it's still interesting to me that Luke seems to capture, as if with a snapshot, just this this momentary hesitation, this lapse of faith, not because the news wasn't good enough, but because the news was too good. Too big. This kind of doubt I'm calling, this is not a New Testament phrase, a kind of um, self-protection mechanism And I think it's common. I'm going to try and show you practical ways that I think it manifests itself. It's it's one way that we have of sealing ourselves off from any, any additional, any future disappointment and pain. And I I think you can see it clearly in this account from Luke's gospel. It's too bad we have the separation of millennia and cultures and language. We we probably can't even imagine, we probably can't even imagine the gaping wound, at least for a while, the gaping wound the death of Jesus left in the hearts of his broken followers. They left everything, and they told Jesus that. We, We have... We have no backup plan. Burned all our bridges. All the money we have, we put on Jesus. Their lives. You catch just a little bit of the disappointment in the remarks of Jesus and in the words of the disciples to Jesus on the Emmaus Road. That's in this same chapter. And I think Luke has it orchestrated to fit the narrative. In verses 17 to 21, Jesus comes. The two are walking together. And Jesus says, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still. Look at this. They stood still looking sad. Okay? Dragging their feet. Mopey. You could tell by looking at them, sorrow written all over them. One of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem? Here's the one to whom all these things happened. Okay? There's great patience of Jesus here. And they're saying, obviously you haven't got a clue about the events that have just happened here. Jesus actually had a pretty good idea of the events. Um, 
that had happened. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, this is their understanding, see, prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then these words. Oh, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, we put our hopes in this man. Oh, how we hoped. Besides all this, it's now the third day since all these things have happened. That second last sentence has to be the understatement of the year. We had hoped, we had hoped he was the one. They did more than just hope. They, they banked everything on Jesus. They told Jesus they had last, left absolutely everything to follow him. They bet all or nothing on Jesus Christ. And then they watched him die on that bloody cross... We can't imagine. The experience of the crucifixion had been a, a harrowing experience for the followers of Jesus. After they watched, we know what they did, they just ran. Get me out of here. Now they're hiding. They must have, those three days, they must have just replayed. It's like if you watched, if you had, I, I don't mean to be heartless, but if, if, if you watched... Imagine if you watched your own son or daughter hit by a car. Do you think you could just get that image out of your head? And so there they are, and they just replay this. Their Lord, their Matt, look at them. And they couldn't get that out of their heads. Sooner or later, they tried their best to get over it, and they tried to put the pieces of their lives back. A couple of them went back to fishing. Their old dreams, their old lifestyles, that's all they had left to live for. Jesus took them to such promised, unbelievable heights, only to leave them afraid and lonely and fearful and flat on their faces. Okay, then, bang. Right in the middle of all this, Jesus, Jesus appears to them and their minds begin to race here we go again. I'll tell you what I think that phrase, they disbelieved for joy, means. I think it means they didn't want to be heartbroken again. They were just getting over one wound, and they couldn't stand to go through it all again. So because the potential for joy was so great and the fear of disappointment was so overwhelming, they were caught just for a minute like a deer in the headlights, frozen, hesitating. Too good. Disbelieving for joy. This can't be. That everything is real, that everything you said was true. Uh, oh, man. I want it to be true. I don't want to go through that again. They're just getting over the pain, and suddenly there's Jesus. Game on again. Immediately, everything is on the line. Now, as I said, fortunately in their case, this kind of, the, 
These are the text's words. This disbelief for joy. It, it didn't last long, just a moment. But what I want to say this morning, as we branch into looking at us, is that that's not always the case. I want to look at this very same kind of doubt when it gets left unchallenged and unchecked in our hearts. So I'm calling this Doubts from an Old Scar. The title might not be perfect, but I I think it helps capture a key idea. For those disciples, that wound, still pretty fresh, the wound was the apparent loss of their Lord and Master. And even if their theology was wrong, their disappointment was genuine and, and keen. And it was that scar, that disappointment, that kept them, just for a minute, from believing even with all the best evidence in the world, Jesus is standing there eating fish in front of them. So the problem isn't with the evidence. It's not that kind of doubt. No, their momentary disbelief. Why do you doubt, Jesus asked them. So we know there was doubt there. Jesus wouldn't have said that. Their momentary disbelief had nothing to do with a lack of proof. The problem was something inside them. The problem was this defense mechanism that had triggered in their souls. After something so devastating, seeing their Lord die, not understanding, not getting it. After something so devastating, could could they put their hope in anything so wonderful again? It almost seemed like more than they had the right to expect. And what I want to say this morning is people can get themselves more long-term into those kinds of strange situations where they, they just get so accustomed to shutting out hope in God that they, they close off a part of their heart to yielding and submitting and believing and trusting and receiving from him again. Let me try and flesh this out for you, okay, and make it practical. Point number one. This kind of doubt comes whenever a problem takes God's place in the heart. It's more common than you might think. It is perhaps the most commonly justified form of idolatry because we rename it as humility. Some some crisis, some pain, some issue with another person, it becomes the dominant shaper of, of our thoughts and our choices. And then gradually, subtly, we begin to look at God through the lens of our problem, the lens of our wound, rather than looking at the problem through the lens of faith and trust in God. And at that point, we no longer have just a wound or a problem. The problem has, has us. It's driving. I've seen it a lot of times. There are people who, even though they know better theologically, they find a certain comfort in defining their lives around a past wound, a past hurt, a past problem. So much so that 
even if they were guaranteed a solution, they're afraid they'd have to get on with life, and that's a bit risky. This kind of doubt germinates whenever personal experience, usually a bad experience, when that becomes absolute in the life rather than God. And, and the bad and the painful experience colors the life rather than faith in the risen Christ. And a painful past shapes their attitude so habitually that they would feel incomplete if they suddenly had to move on in fresh grace and promise and provision that the Lord would give. Point number two, examples. Examples of scars that can germinate their own doubts. This is not some vague psychological problem. I think it's in the text. And let me give you some some examples. A. Sometimes a string of disappointments can steal the heart against expecting anything permanently, genuinely good just for fear of being disappointed again. That's the disciples. The danger of this kind of withered faith is that it it looks like humility when it's actually self-pity. And it can start to taste sweet and pleasant when it's indulged in. I had a lady in this church not all that long ago tell me she didn't pray for her wayward son anymore because she couldn't stand having that prayer go unanswered. Think about that. Because I don't think she's the only one in the room that wrestles with that. And she couldn't see the twisted circle in her thinking. If anyone refuses the risk of unanswered prayer, they will... By elimination, never know the joy of answered prayer either. Not ever. Uh, But I'm not going, I can't take that. I can't take that. I'm not going through that disappointment again. That's the disciples. Why do doubts arise in your heart, Jesus says to them? True enough. The cross was a painful experience for the disciples, but it was no excuse for rejecting the life and power of the risen Christ when he was standing there right in front of him. Why do you let doubts come up in your hearts? Now of all times. That's what Jesus is saying. I said they had no excuse, but there was a cause. There can come a strange kind of comfort. I hope I can make this clear. A strange kind of comfort. A predictability in not daring a a venturous, risky, passionate trust in God. You, You will never have to stretch if you're content to shrink. But the cost of that kind of unchallenged self-pity is is you will never experience what you actually long for the most. Fresh, transforming touch from the hand of God. It can happen Sunday. Prayer for needs around the front of the church. And the, the marvel of God's promise and provision is swallowed up 
by the painful awareness that, well, you came forward last week and you're no better off now than you were then. I'm not going to set myself up for that again. You see? That's the disciples. Here's another cause. B. When we've been genuinely wronged by someone else in the past, we risk shutting God out by our present cherishing of unforgiveness. You, you can see it in Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. Jesus is the speaker here. Talking about, this is the temple. He's talking about how people go to church, how people worship, how they make their approach to God. That's what we're doing here today, right? So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift there. Before the altar, go. See the verb? If you do this, if you remember, go, act on it. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come. Then come offer your gift. So these verses are designed to show clearly just the impossibility of communion with God when there's a personal problem with a brother. It, it's, it's the altar or holding on to that moment of pain, hurt, brokenness, revenge, anger. It's always a mix of all of those things. But you can't do both at once. You can't stay with that and nurse that and think that somehow you're going to bring your life into connection with God. It, it won't. I'll tell you this, if that person doesn't go right away to fix things with that brother or that sister, however wrong that person may be, he'll soon quit coming to the altar altogether because, because nobody likes to live with that kind of condemnation. Why, why did this person suddenly remember there's a problem with a brother? Why did he remember this right when he was coming to offer his gift in worship? Who was reminding him, do you think? Maybe the Holy Spirit? Do you think? So if I don't deal with that, I might not be holy, but I'm not stupid. I'll put two and two together and know that, you know, every time I go into that place, I just feel, oh, this inner battle and this struggle. You know what? There's a solution. I just won't go to the altar anymore. And what will happen then is, as time goes by, the person will come to doubt the reality of God, even the existence of God. But the problem never was a lack of evidence. The problem was nursing a hurt and allowing doubt to start to grow and dominate. But it wasn't an intellectual doubt. Doubt's caused by an old scar trying to protect itself. C. Sometimes the perfectionist can shy away from God because he convinces himself he isn't worthy of God's help and blessing. Now, of course, that looks like humility. But it's not. It's humility's twin, pride. What about the times you did feel comfortable coming to God for help? Were those the times you were worthy? 
Again, this kind of false humility is really nothing more than a, than a way of justifying or remaining comfortable, avoiding God, because we know that if we come for cleansing and grace right away, he will pardon And then we'll have no excuse for staying home from church or skipping devotions or turning down all those invitations to teach Sunday school or lead a Bible study. The common factor in all these attitudes and many more that we didn't have time to mention is the fear of letting go of that wound from the past is keeping the person from taking hold of the only one who can set him free. It's in becoming comfortable with the way we've adjusted to disappointing, hurtful, unjust, compromising situations in the past, in becoming comfortable with that, we are prevented from taking hold of the one who could change our future. Here it is. You discover this lesson. We learn it. You never have to worry about falling down again just so long as you don't get up. Right? There's a certain safety in that. You never have to worry about falling down again if you just don't get up. What else? How else can you explain these disciples? There's Jesus, just like he said, the risen Christ, standing there physically in front of them, eating fish. Oh, no, this can't be. We're starting all over. And God insists on helping us get up. So our only safe refuge is is doubting and refusing the one thing we need and secretly want the most, the help and power of the risen Christ right now. Last point. What to do with unbelief that comes from an old scar or an old wound? Each kind of doubt calls for its own distinct remedy. Intellectual doubts, there are answers. Study, learn, I talked about that. Uh, Foundational doubts that come from not making a proper start in the Christian life. We talked about that. That can be remedied. These secret doubts, they aren't going to be helped by a book of proofs for the existence of God. Remember, Luke's account of the disciples, there's no lack of proof of the risen Christ. They don't need evidence. He's there. He's eating with them. So, doubts from an old scar, an old wound, they don't come from lack of evidence. They come from a fear of believing for the future. They come from preferring the known bondage to the risk and challenge of being set free. What might be around the corner with a Christ like this? In other words, the source of the problem is inward. It's not outward. The problem isn't with God. The problem isn't even with the circumstances of my past. The problem is my heart. I've made my wound my lifestyle. The remedy for those who have the courage is to call my cherished scar, the fear, the doubt, the disappointment, the unanswered prayer, the wound from a friend, 
whatever it is, the challenge is to call that cherished wound what it really is. Call it pride. Call it sin. Call it a refusal to listen to the Spirit of God. Nothing else will do. These barriers can't be psychologized away. Only confession and the blood of Jesus will do. Fortunately, there's no power, no lack of power in the blood of Jesus. The trick, again, is with, with our inward will and heart. It's, it's the nature of these wounds that they can't just be cleansed while they hide in their burrows. You have to drag them out. They have to be dragged, kicking and screaming, into the light of the cross. You have to call them what they are. They must be named specifically. They must be tagged. They must be identified slowly, carefully, as the Holy Spirit gets into the corners of your heart. It's like, it's like when you're washing your bathroom floor. You've got to get down on your knees and you've got to get in behind the toilet. Clean it. Maybe that illustration will help. There's, there's, no, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of us when we let God look into our hearts. It's like walking into the middle of the room with a Swiffer and just kind of going over it. And the Holy Spirit comes and goes, yeah, but back, back there, underneath, way back there in that corner, that's where these kind of doubts lurk. That's why I hope you don't get tired of the fact that over and over again, for as long as I have breath and I'm here in this church, I hope we're never tired of those times where I just week by week might say, you know, we need to just come and we just need to let Jesus cleanse our hearts. Let's come around the front all over again and let's just come and let Jesus wash our hearts clean. Let's clean behind the toilet this morning. Because greed starts to grow and pride starts to grow. Materialism starts to grow. Carelessness starts to grow. And then, like all other gracious cleansing, we can relearn the joy of walking in the light. Those cherished, comfortable excuses for doubt and laziness, maybe even anger, They weren't so beautiful after all, but only only the light of the cross and only the act of repentance will expose the ugly faces of those old wounds. It's not humility. It's, It's pride and it's rebellion against the spirit that says, get up, get up, and let's get going. Well... I don't know. What if I fall again? Well, let me just take the mystery out of that for you. You will. My understanding of grace, and I don't, I think you know me by now. I don't take sin lightly. We preach about sin and talk about sin more than a lot of churches do. But my understanding of grace is that it isn't the number of times I fall. It's the number of times I get up. Jesus, I'm sorry. See, we get it all backwards. Repentance is what godly people do. Godless people don't care beans about repentance. 
the closer you get to the Lord. I repent of my sins far more now than when I first gave my heart to Jesus. Far more now. I don't know how that works, that somehow the Holy Spirit keeps working in my life and I, I see more and more things that I didn't see before. Am I just confessing my sins? Has anybody else uh, experienced this at all? Yeah, good. I feel better. Six of us. <laughs> Let's pray together.